Welcome back to Spinal Tap Minute. We're on episode 43 of the podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and none more black eyes the movie This is Spinal Tap, one magnificent minute at a time. I'm Heidi Bennett of HeidiBennett.com. And I'm Sean German of 5MinutesOfMime.com. And joining us today is our special guest, author and journalist, Chris Epting. Hey there. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. I appreciate oh, the invite. Thank you Thanks for coming for joining by. us. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, so. Take it away. Let's do this. Yeah, so you, you, you picked a, a good day to stop by the tour. In minute 43, we start with Nigel describing to Marty a, a new piece he's working on. We end with Derek setting off the airport metal detector. And in between, Nigel is describing the intertwining lines of a mock piece. It's really, I, I remember seeing this when it, right when it came out in the theaters. And this scene I loved because for the first time in the movie, Nigel, he has this gravitas all of a sudden. Like all of a sudden, he's a real sensitive musician. You know, he's, uh, he's creating, he's like feeling, he's sharing. He's doing what musicians do when they're comfortable, you know, and if you if you didn't know any better, if all you saw was beginning of that minute, you would think, wow, this is a sensitive, soulful musician who's plying his craft, you know, on camera. I mean, obviously, they're setting up the, the joke title, but it's uh, but I love the seriousness of and the mood. And, and we see he can play. I mean, you know, not playing intricately, but he he has a sense of melody and his hands are actually on a keyboard. Nothing's dubbed. It's a real, you know, it's a live in the, in the moment um, moment. Yeah, it sounds really realistic. They look, it's an intimate little spot. We haven't had this intimacy with, with Nigel yet. So it does feel like a, a bit of a departure from our other scenes. And it's really nice. Yeah, and it's hard to imagine any of the other characters. I think Nigel obviously has a, a ton of charisma in whatever he's doing. Mm -hmm. And even when he's being serious, I think I, I'm really drawn to this scene. When you see it, you really kind of – you scooch up a little closer, I think. You hear what's going on and, and kind of make sense of it. And uh, and I actually think it's it's great acting too. I think Christopher Guest at this moment is really – it's not – it's harder than he's making it look, I think. To take this character, which is already established as kind of a moronic, pompous, you know, all those sort of qualities they have. But in that moment, you know, gum chewing and all, he's, um, <laughs> he's delivering something sort of, you know, dare I say, like poignant, you know what I mean? Which you would right. never hang on any other moment in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we're getting a little bit, he's talking about his musical influences. You know, he's, he's getting a little deep here. Very. Uh, I mean, you definitely make a connection. Yeah, and it, he, and it, it doesn't start small either. I mean, he goes he goes right <laughs> to the pantheon of of composers, right? I mean, to to be citing Mozart and Bach. I mean, as your two, you know, <laughs> the immodesty. <laughs> that's where you start. I think is is just brilliant. I don't know if you remember at the um, when this movie came out. They were on Saturday Night Live as guests, and Barry Boswick interviewed them, everything in character. Mm -hmm. And similarly, he's talking about being influenced by Mozart. And I think what was so brilliant about that is he's talking about Mozart um, being, A, being deaf. And <laughs> David corrects me, he says, no, that was Beethoven. And he says, ah, oh, okay, just sort of, you know, glosses right over it, moves on. But then he talks about Mozart's mother, how she would admonish him as a little boy to not play really loud. 
and he goes into like a high pitch kind of, you know, Mozart, Mozart, don't play loud. <laughs> I remember thinking, watching it going, wow. So he's saying Mozart's mother called him Mozart. Called him Mozart. <laughs> like I thought that was so funny, you know, and so subtle. Um, how the movie extended into these other appearances. I, I remember thinking that's so brilliant promoing the movie they were also on the joe franklin show and the beauty of that what i found fascinating was that joe franklin this venerable new york city radio tv host who had all sort of the golden era showbiz stars on has spinal tap on only they were in character and he didn't know they were a fake band so they are given the full treatment as real guests and it's really amazing to see how they pull it off you know and it's it's live television and you can look you, you haven't seen this clip right Right. No, it's new to no, yeah, us. It's it's real. It's sort of art being created live in front of your face because they're taking all of the. Now I think there's about a three minute clip on um on YouTube. The whole thing runs about fifteen minutes, and that's what you need to track down because it really is. It's a magnificent sort of collision of a real talk show and and a fake band and just how this whole thing you know morphs into a new piece of art. It's really incredible, and Joe totally buys into them as a band. And says to them, you know, says to one of the other panelists, you know, what do you want to say or ask of a red hot group? You know, he's been been briefed that they're like on the edge, like this is the big thing right now, you know, and he treats them as if they're like Black Sabbath or something. (laughs) And and it's really amazing. And the other guests all buy into it. Joe's co-host buys into it. And you, you couldn't make this up. And I remember thinking, wow, they really they've done it. Like they've pulled this thing off on levels that nobody in in history has ever pulled off before. And, you know, I always used to wonder, like, who really thought they were a real band, who thought they were a fake. I always kind of went off the 80-20 rule. 80% of the people I knew uh, who loved the movie knew it was kind of hip inside thing. But there were 20% who would say, yeah, you know, the music kind of sucks, but it was a funny movie. But they thought it was a real, like, band that just sort of lived under the radar. And... That that they, blew, killed yeah. me that people could actually buy into it on that level, right? Well, yeah, they, they, they commit to it all the way. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's it just commitment. The yeah, connect, we, commitment. To everything. Yeah, we, we've talked to people who saw them. So they did. They've done a couple reunion tours. I think in '92 there was like a return of Spinal yeah, Tap, yeah. and then around 2002 they did a tour. And we've spoken to people who've seen them in concert. And I think it was the 2002 concert where the opening act was the Folksman from yeah. A Mighty Wind. Brilliant. And people saying they didn't, you know, they knew Spinal Tap. They knew it was Michael McKeon and Harry Shearer and Christopher Guest. They knew the main act was kind of a joke or actors. They didn't pick up that the Folksman was an act. They just thought, what's, you know, why is this old timey folk group opening up for this rock and roll novelty act? And it took it and, and like eventually it, it kind of like the wave of realization watched over the audience slowly. Well, look, these guys are like they're so smart, you know, they're just so smart. And another kind of extension they did back then, I'm looking it up as we were talking, is I saw Spinal Tap in 19 after the movie came out it was May 6th, 1984. And they played at CBGB in New York, very famous seminal, you know, club where I had grown up seeing Ramones and Blondie and television, all those bands. Well, here, here was Spinal Tap in there as packed as I've ever seen the club. And I'm sure there were people there that night that, you know, thought that it was a real band, that this was a mm-hmm. big comeback tour, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, they, and you know what, though? They played their asses off at that show. And I remember thinking it was so surreal to 
you know, on that same stage where I'd watched the like early Ramones, you know, 1976, 77, to see Spinal Tap up there sharing that same kind of airspace was uh, was really remarkable, you know, and it was uh, there's no video of it. I've never heard audio of it, but it was uh, they played, you know, they played a real show mm-hmm. and they treated it like a real concert wasn't a spoof. And people loved it. Even those of us that knew what was going on, if you could sort of suspend reality, which I think has a lot to do with the success of this movie, suspending all reality. Uh, it, it worked as a really, a really good show too. Yeah, I think you mentioned um, off mic that you also got a chance to actually listen to and have dinner with Harry Shearer and Fred Willard. Yeah, I got to know Fred Willard about 20, 25 years or so ago. Uh, we became very fast friends. He's a big baseball history fan like I am. And mm. and we hit it off and would go exploring old ballparks and stuff. And, you know, I slowly but surely let him know I was a huge Spinal Tap fan, which he always loved talking about. And he just called me one night and he goes, hey, Harry Shearer is doing his radio, kind of a live radio thing down in Santa Monica, but he and I are going to have dinner after. Why don't you come along? And I just cool. champed at the bit and, and I went and the three of us went out afterwards and the subject of the movie came up and I just sort of faded into the background and listened to those two guys talking about it because they really had kind of fun war. Even though Fred they, Fred was saying they shot that scene, the um, military base, was out at LAX. There's an old hangar at LAX where they went and shot it. Mm. And Harry Shearer just kept saying, he goes, you know, he goes, if you look at Chris, Chris Guest um, carefully in the movie, he can't even look at you and not laugh. <laughs> because he, he says he's such a fan of yours. He, he All he want to do was get you to do that and he's such a fan that he knew that every syllable was going to matter and was going to be funny and 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 fred you know fred is very humble i, I think fred is the funniest person on the face of the earth but he's very humble about it you know when, when he's hit with a comment like that he doesn't react and he's very modest about it and harry sure was just couldn't stop talking about what fans they were of fred's and to his point that scene as short as it is it resonates in ways that are just you know fred you know i would not want to if i were an actor he's the last guy i'd want to be on camera with because he just steals everything just by being himself that clueless you know <laughs> however you describe that character yeah um, so brilliant it's so funny and you know and it works and um yeah so i've had some interesting moments growing up of of kind of different levels of exposure to the spinal tap phenomena whether it was seeing them at cbgb's whether it was um you know getting getting that night with harry sheer and fred but then also when i worked on a tv show in the mid 80s and the director of photography peter smokler had been the dp on spinal tap as well right and as soon as i right. learned that Super innovative guy. He came up with all these different. If you ever watched the Larry Sanders show, you know, Peter is the guy that came up with how to put himself on roller skates mm. to capture those hallway shots, those moving tracking shots, you know, in a really cheap, effective way. He was a very innovative guy. And when he learned what a huge uh, tap fan I was, he goes, Oh, we have, he goes, We overshot so much stuff. I'll bring in a box of tapes tomorrow. And to his, to, true to his word, he brings in this box of old one-inch tapes, spools them up on an old player that he brought, and all day we watch these amazing outtakes and wow. dead scenes and, and things, you know, just hours worth that he had. And I know some of those things have been repackaged, but I know for a fact there's plenty more that haven't been, and he mm. was just uh, so in love with talking about that movie. Anybody I've met related to that movie loves talking about it. There's no shyness about it. There's certainly no shame about it. I think they all know what they achieved on that movie and it's it, it holds up you know it stands the test and so they i don't think they'll ever get tired of talking about it 
That's great. Oh, that sounds like you've had some really fun opportunities. I've been very fortunate. As far as tap goes, this movie, it means a lot to me. I mean, I'll tell you on a, on a not even funny note, when it came out, I have a twin sister and she became ill right when the movie came out and very ill. And she was ultimately diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And it was a very hard time in my life. That movie for me was like a personal escape. I would go back to the theater to forget about all the the anxiety in real life. Right. And that movie, it was it had such a saving grace mm-hmm. power for me because when I when I would go in and check into that movie, it's like I could zone out and laugh and and feel it was cathartic, you know, to laugh at that. As the years went by, I, t- I took my you know my sister who we laugh about it now, you know, and I sat with her and watched it one day, and I said, I told you, you have no idea while you were going through what you were going through, what this movie did for me. So it works. I mean, it's funny. But for me, it's bigger than that, you know, and it was this, it provided this kind of outlet where I could go and just, uh, the brilliance to me, the movies, they create this kind of netherworld, right? Where nothing is really real. They don't ever acknowledge another band. There is no Led Zeppelin. There is no Black Sabbath. There's no Rolling Stones. There's nothing except them, you know? They're all that exists. As far as the music goes, they're it. And I think there's something very cool about that. And it allows them to create this sort of separate parallel universe, you know, where Spinal Tap has had all of these different histories over the years. And I think it's a very subtle thing with that movie. But when you go back in time within the movie and see the old clip of them playing Give Me Some Money, and they look, I mean, it was shot at the same time as the rest of the movie, but they look 20 years younger. Right. right. Well, and it's so well done that, yeah, they look younger, even like the graininess, yeah. the feel like it doesn't really? feel like, oh, they just took 1982 footage and made it black and white. No, it's really old. The like pixelation, the, the resolution looks period towards, you know, 65 or 67 or whenever the older clips were. The, the attention to detail in universe building to, totally. to get the history of this band. Totally. And and then they, but I, I love too, especially that give me some money clip. It reminds me like of an old small faces or Yardbirds clip where you would see like Jimmy Page with short hair or Jeff Beck. But then five right. or six years later, they've grown into these iconic rock stars like Mount Rushmore figures, right? Right. And, and right. Spinal Tap captures that transformation. You know, 10 years earlier, however many years it is, you're on that television show. And oh, and by the way, Ed Begley Jr. is on the drums, right? Like, <laughs> right, yep. right. To throw yeah. another weird curveball. And even though when it came out, a lot of people didn't know who he was. But for those that did, it was a weird thing to see him sitting by. It's that, that guy. And yeah. they just handled the transformation over time of building eras. And I, I think that's a real... Uh, that's a filmmaker's thing. I mean, I think Rob Reiner, he had a, as funny as the guys were, I think Rob Reiner had a real great vision of how to make this movie feel really important. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has this gravitas, kind of like The Last Waltz did with Martin Scorsese, which I know they probably looked at and, you know, measured a little bit, but but he does bring that importance to it. And I think, you know, in the scene, the minute we're talking about where he's playing the piano, Rob Reiner, you know, he's he's very <laughs> solemn and he's very mm-hmm. respectful of what's going on. It's, there's not a joke. Okay, there's a joke being set up. But while he's listening to the music, it's uh, I think it's very compelling to watch him just kind of sit back and take it all in. Yeah, he looks like he's really taking it in. Like you said, it's not he's not checked out. He's like, oh, this is a this is a special moment here. I get with this talented artist. I'm going to pay attention to what what his process and experience is. Yeah. Sean, you had mentioned off mic before about when he's talking about the chords in that minute, 
that can like make you weep, which is, I mean, really funny. Yet he plays them, and they're actually very sad, very like melancholy dirge-like chords. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, he's I, right. I, I kind of want to see some some solo Nigel stuff of what he would do yeah. <laughs> without the band. It's a very touching like a piece. concerto. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, definitely. But you were saying that there actually is some kind of truth or accuracy in what he's describing in terms of the chord? Well, yeah. So I, I did a little research. And so he says, so D minor is, he says, this is the saddest of all keys, really. And just in particular, the, the, the two composers he mentioned, Mozart and Bach, they both have pretty major pieces that they did in D minor. Uh, for Bach, he did uh, The Art of Fugue which is sort of a suite. It's a collection of, of fugues and other pieces that are primarily in the key of D minor. And it's sort of an intellectual exercise that Bach did. He started with a simple theme, and then it's all different variations of the theme and all kind of different permutations of, you know, of kind of the, the, the same sort of idea, just what, how can you play with it and, and, and work it around? But that's primarily in D minor. And then for Mozart, there's his uh, his Requiem in D minor. And then an, another interesting connection I found between those two pieces is they were both unfinished. Both these were both the last major pieces that these uh, composers did before they died, hmm. and so they were actually unfinished. I think eventually one of Bach's students kind of filled in the missing bits for his Art of Fugue, but. Yeah, so so two unfinished pieces at at the end of their lives, and and both in D minor. And and I, I wonder if that was kind of part of the research that, that you know it Chris wouldn't surprise me. These guys are so they're so smart. I mean, I would put nothing past them, mm -hmm. and nothing. There's nothing by accident either. You know what I mean? The references, everything is uh, the way. I remember Harry Sheard telling me before they even started shooting, he went out on the road. I think it was either with Status Quo or Uriah Heep, kind of a, a cheesy over the hill metal band at that point. But he wanted to absorb there's – there's an amazing scene to jump out of that minute for a second where they're sound checking in the theater with Give Me Some Money. Mm -hmm. And I love that scene because we've, we've seen the clip of them as youngsters playing it, like the, the lovely lads or whatever. And now to see them as these kind of metal you know, demigods kind of noodling through it, they're acknowledging their past in a really interesting way, you know, and – and sound checking like that, I think Harry Shear probably picked that up. When you watch how sound checks, they'll play songs they may not even play during the show. And it's very hard to imagine Give Me Some Money being part of any modern day Spinal Tap set, right? Right, right. right. Yet they're working through it and they're calling it GSM, you know, GSM. So we're hearing their little code words, which bands do. Again, it's, this is so subtle and such minutiae. But I think, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if Harry Scherer picked that stuff up on the road, you know, and watching those those sort of boring sound checks that are not that boring if you pay attention to it. And these guys, if nothing else, obviously pay very good attention to their, their inspirations. And again, it just it gets you back to the reality of this and just how authentic it is. So so did Chris Guest go and, and you know, look into what Mozart and Bach, you know, these <laughs> who may be, but it yeah. doesn't seem like that would be sort of a coincidence. Yeah. Agreed, agreed. Well, and let's, if we can, maybe kind of get back into this minute so that we, uh, <laughs> I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and would love to absolutely do yes. that. But um, yeah, so we've got Nigel talking about his piece. His here, mock piece. His yeah. mock piece. And then we, then we move on to just a f few seconds here towards the end of the minute into this 
we're leading into what's going to happen next minute, but we've got the guys going through the security at the airport. <laughs> Which I love. I, To me, I remember seeing the movie thinking, you know, we're seeing him in the airport a couple of times during the movie, which is, you know, part of any road life experience in a band. But I would love to have seen what it would have been like to have been on an actual flight with them. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like even just the... You know, how would they have reacted to the to the, you know, the in-flight announcements, to the snacks, to the drinks, the whole thing. It's like the movie is so brilliant that you find yourself almost creating another movie in your head, extending scenes they don't show you, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so funny imagining because you know, it seems like they're flying commercial, right? It's not like they're they're not at that level. If they had their own plane, we'd probably see it. Right. Yeah. So they're not flying it or something. Yeah, so they're in the they're in the yeah they're in the terminals with the common folk. They're passing Regular through the people, same security yeah. and yeah. So what about yeah the the person who's like sitting next to them and 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 maybe they're you know they're flying first class, but they're yeah, still there around. Other know, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe I mean, not. Again, they're getting one suite at the hotel. It's not like you know. It's pretty low budget. <laughs> it feels very low budget, you know. Even the arrangements yeah. backstage, it's like you know, this is not a first class rock and roll. This isn't Zeppelin or the Stones. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, this yeah, is right, more right. hand to mouth. It feels like everybody's squeezed into one limo. I love that. Yeah, Everybody right, right. in one limo. You know. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe let's move the conversation into our next minute and talk really deeply here. We've got some great sure. outfits. We've got some great security folk here. Um, it looks like Derek's starting to <laughs> unload his keys and tuning fork, et cetera. Which um, begs the question, yeah. like, the keys are for what on the road? <laughs> yeah, it's, are those his house keys? Like, it's, yeah. Maybe He's those not are for his, anywhere. It's, maybe those are his handcuffed keys that's what i guess <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna work with handcuffs you're gonna want to have keys. although you know what maybe another thing too remember we're back in an era where there were actual hotel room keys right oh, so right. if you just yeah. hang on to the keys when they just check out the I mean, <laughs> it's possible it's we possible. forget like you know early 80s it was before key cards i think for the most yeah yeah so they'd get actual like a metal key for the hotel rooms He's just totally. kind of collecting those as souvenirs or something, or very possible. Because you got to know, like, so they're they're flying all over. This is not his first tour. He's he's got to know about the metal detectors. Yeah, that you have like, in your pockets, right? That you, before you go in. And it's interesting too. I I think it's fascinating to rewatch that scene, given how we live today in airports. It is a time capsule of how things were then. It's pretty sure. accurate, you know, how they yeah. do that old school metal detector, which with the mm-hmm. the whist, you know whiny whistle thing on it. And you, you don't think you could get a, a cricket bat? You don't think you get a cricket bat on a on a plane today? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Just walk on board because uh, yeah, Ian's got his big piece of wood. Yeah, I love too that the Derek's wearing. You know, he's got a soccer jersey on. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's a real team. But it's a, it's a taste that there's another real world out there. This movie is so claustrophobic and in such a vacuum. We never really get a sense of like reality. Yet a soccer jersey is like there there's a team somewhere, there's a league somewhere, probably back at England where he's from. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of nice too. It's a it's the first real sense that, you know, that there's another outside of the, their parallel universe that other things exist beat besides just the band. Yeah. Right, cuz it's a lot of 
airport to hotel to backstage to concert to hotel. It's a very insular world that they're in that you, we don't get a lot of hints of the the greater universe. Right. Um, yeah. Right. And, and what we see, it's actually just a quick aside. That is a Shrewsbury Town Football Club jersey. Um, so it is an oh, actual so jersey know. for a real club that's uh, kind of on the west side of England. It's a little shout yeah. out to Shrewsbury. Sure. Sean does the deep, <laughs> deep uh, research here. So that's great, Sean. <laughs> Thank you for that, Sean. I never knew that. That's great. All right. Well, cool. Well, if there's nothing else to say about this minute, I think maybe we can wrap it up. And, and Chris, are you available to come back um, and share with us for uh, next minute tomorrow? Are you kidding? I would love to. I'm going to want <laughs> more minutes. I can't, you can't do this a little bit. It's like having a peanut. You need more than just totally. one. <laughs> well, cool. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for episode 43 of Spinal Tap Minute. We hope you'll come back tomorrow and um, see what uh, what's making the metal detector go off here, if you're not sure. <laughs> you can find us at SpinalTapMinute.com and um, from there you can uh, tour the world and elsewhere through that website <laughs> oh I also speaking of spinaltapminute.com I just want to mention that someone had done uh, that scene with Nigel and Marty where Nigel's playing his mock piece someone had done that in Lego where they took uh, the sound from the movie but they did the scene a little Lego Nigel and Lego Marty playing a, a Lego <laughs> piano. So it's on YouTube. I'll put a link to that on the website. I'll uh, I'll see if I can find that Joe Franklin clip and put a link there as well. So, Please do. Uh, it's, it's a great timepiece. It, it's it's truly amazing. You will not forget it once you see it. Awesome. Yeah. So so check out the website. You'll get those links. And then check us out tomorrow for Minute 44. But until next time, and so say all of us... Tap, Tap into, into America. America. <laughs>